Dentists are, by and large, part-time radiologists. It's not their primary focus. If you speak to any dean of any dental school, they're leaving with a lack of proficiency in various forms of pathology detection, and then they're expected to learn on the job. And there's a real lack of consistent feedback mechanisms to make them better over time. Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs and investors who are driving progress in healthcare and life science around the globe. Welcome back. Today on the show, we're joined by Ophir Tons, CEO and founder of Pearl, where the future of dentistry is being powered by AI. We cover Ophir's background, Pearl's products and services, what makes dentistry an ideal environment for deploying AI-enabled clinical decision support tools, learnings from raising series A and B financing, how our preference for visual storytelling can be leveraged to improve diagnostic performance and better engage patients, Pearl's regulatory strategy and why they pursued 10 FDA clearances with a single submission, how to source high-quality machine learning training data and label it effectively, and the potential for generative AI to drive step-change improvements in healthcare delivery. It's a lot to get into. Let's get started. Today, I'm sitting here with Ophir Tons, founder and CEO of Pearl. Ophir, welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. So why don't we just get started and maybe you can share the story behind the inception of Pearl. So, you know, what was your inspiration and what problem were you trying to solve? Yeah, for sure. So my background is more so in computer science and technology and computer vision. And I've actually been working in the applied computer vision space for more than 15 years now uh, and built a company prior to Pearl called GumGum which was driven by computer vision capabilities, and we grew to be a billion-dollar-plus company. And uh, funnily enough, my father is actually also a retired dentist. But several years ago, around 2015 or so, seeing the rapid advances in AI and computer vision, it became pretty clear that this capability was going to have a dramatic impact on all industries, but in particular in medicine, in radiologic applications, it was clear that AI could add a lot of value in clinical support. So I became very interested in the application of this technology to some form of radiology in a way that would be beneficial to you know the industry and ultimately to patients as well. Um, so I actually looked at various forms of medicine and radiology and did a lot of investigation and ultimately decided to get serious about how to apply computer vision in the dental field with dental radiography and see if we could add value there. And the thing with dentistry is there's more radiographs captured in dentistry annually than any other form of medicine. They're very core to understanding what's happening with regards to the oral health of a given patient and to charting out a treatment plan if there's a treatment plan necessary. And there's a lot of other nice attributes to that when you're thinking about sort of solving this kind of problem from an AI perspective. There's ready access to massive data sets. You know, in dentistry, you're not typically dealing with life or death. So while you need to be very privacy conscious and very conscious of HIPAA compliance, there tends to be more readiness on the parts of partners, whether it's universities or DSOs or individual practices to actually share data 
And then you have a sales motion into market that's very different than the rest of medicine. So obviously there's a regulatory component, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit, but that aside, just in terms of selling this capability, implementing this capability into market, dentistry is very entrepreneurial. It's very fragmented in the way that medicine is not, and that you can go out and sell to individual rooftops or these dental service organizations, whereas in medicine, you're often selling to large hospital groups, and that could take a very long time, and there's all types of friction associated with that. And I also like that we're very explicitly facilitating a responsibility that practitioners have and that they really need. So what I mean by that is dentists are, by and large, part-time radiologists. This is something that they learn in school. It's not their primary focus. If you speak to any dean of any dental school, they're leaving that school with a lack of proficiency in various forms of pathology detection, and then they're expected to learn on the job. And there's a real lack of consistent feedback mechanisms to make them better over time. So it was very clear that there was just a lot of immediate value that one could add into these dental operatory environments by virtue of providing radiologic support, decreasing the burden of responsibility on the practitioner, providing them with a second set of eyes. So what we do is actually call second opinion, our core product that is chair-side pathology detection, existing restorations, and other conditions. And, you know, I could talk about some of the numbers there as well, and then also stop talking about this. this is kind of a long answer to your question, but we do surface 37% more disease per radiograph encountered than practitioners typically identify, and also have a pretty profound impact on case presentation, case acceptance. I mean, and a lot of that makes sense, right? That dentistry leans itself more toward an SMB sales motion. Uh, you're not beholden to a big hospital system that may be very risk averse. But I'm curious, you know, tell me a little bit more about you know, your childhood. Your dad was a dentist. Was there something about that background that influenced the vision and the mission at Pearl? I'm honestly not really sure. We all want to please our fathers. Maybe that's the underlying Maybe reason. Maybe he's listening right now. All my decisions. Exactly. So I honestly, I did grow up in a dental operatory environment. I was at the office almost every day. It was very close to the school I went to. So I was there before and after school. I used to love watching my dad perform procedures when the patient was okay with that, which we would ask. And I would just sit there for hours observing. And I thought it was really fascinating. I was always extremely interested in technology. So I always, from a very young age, knew that was likely a direction I was going to go into. But it's very funny that kind of the perfect intersection of what I've been interested in and then what my father did professionally and the environments I was exposed to is sort of where I've ended up now. So I did, though, in all honesty, take a pretty systematic approach to trying to identify where we could have an impact. And I did look at various forms of medicine. We looked at lung nodules, we looked at brain cancer and other forms of cancer. We had lots of um, university level discussions, did a, an array of market analyses, and I think landed on dentistry as a function of many of those systematic considerations as well. I think I was probably leaning towards it and had more ready access to just personnel to talk to about that. So that helped. But ultimately, I do think dentistry is going to significantly leapfrog the rest of medicine as it relates to the successful and wide-scale application of this technology because of the lack of friction points that I mentioned earlier on. Yeah, and the plain customer need. And I thought that you made that point really well. 
Uh, then let me ask you a different way. We have a lot of founders who listen to the podcast who are first-time founders. So how has your background as a repeat founder changed how you started this company compared to other companies you started in the past? Yeah. The way I started this company was very unique because it was incubated at my previous company, which is a large organization. We were able to take our time with it and put resources towards it and leverage a lot of technology that we had built over at GumGum for this application and then made the decision to spin this and other incubated projects out into their own companies. Now, I presented this option to the board. I also said, I think I should go and step down as the CEO of GumGum and run Pearl and had a whole transition plan and explained why I thought that would be a good, safe, and a creative decision for everyone involved. But I also had a bit of a name at that point, and I had a lot of investor relationships. I raised, I don't know, something like $130 million at GumGum. You know, I have a lot of touch points with VCs, which I certainly did not have when starting GumGum. I was like 24, knew nobody, and had to go and do the grind. In this case, to be honest, I mean, I had a few conversations, but one conversation in particular with David Sachs, who was somebody I'd known from Craft Ventures, and I told him about what I was thinking about doing. And he said, I want to lead the A. And we just shook on it in the room and were able to raise a really solid round. It was a good amount of capital. It was an $11 million Series A to spin this thing out and get it done. So I pretty much went to the board with, uh, with an option to discuss that was already kind of like a package deal. Like, here's how we can just wrap this thing up and spin it out. And then since then, we have brought on another 20 or so million dollars and are technically ramping up for our B in the next six to eight months and have brought on a number of good firms and individuals in that process. So I would say it's much, much easier to raise money the second time around. Once you have a bit of a track record and relationships and a name is completely night and day from my initial experience. It also helps that even in what's been as of late, but hopefully now improving, a pretty down market, like the one shining light has been AI and arguably even just healthcare within AI. So we're on everyone's map and every firm has a thesis about where they want to focus and invest. And life is easier if you are always on that map. And we currently are. My previous company was more ad tech oriented. We were not on the map. So it's very different. You just get pursued a lot more aggressively. So I would say to any entrepreneurs that are in this space, they have a pretty greased pathway to raising capital if they're going to raise capital relative to other areas of tech right now. Yep. But I just saw a report, of, I, I believe it was SVB, about VC funding. And year to date, we're on track to exceed 2021 levels for VC inbound funding from LPs, you know, for the first half of this year. Deal volume's been down, but there's tons of dry powder. And, you know, like the macroeconomic picture seems to be improving. Hopefully everybody's been extending runway, conserving cash, but it's looking like it's going to be a busy second half of the year for fundraising. So put yourself in the shoes of somebody who hasn't had all that experience you've just had. Let's say that you've secured an A in 2021, 2022, and you're going to be needing to go bring on a larger round. You got your unit economics figured out and you're going to be bringing on significant new investors. What advice do you have for them? Yeah. I mean, look, thank God for uh, AI and Taylor Swift because they might be giving us a soft <laughs> landing. And I also think we haven't fully seen some of the carnage that is to follow from some of the crazy stuff that was happening in 21. But yeah. at the same time... I think there'll time, be a lot of neutral and down rounds for sure. 
Yeah, for sure. And I know of companies that raised an obscene valuation that they're clearly never going to grow into, even in a very healthy environment. So there's going to be a bunch of that right-sizing that occurs. But I agree. I'm not that worried in terms of, I think a lot of fundings will happen and it's still an attractive asset category for LPs and all that. In terms of, I guess your question is about, particularly like you have initial validation, now you're going to have to raise your A or maybe B round and how to think about that. Yeah, is that right? Exactly. And what profile of investor, like how should you be approaching those conversations? I mean, that's it's a broad conversation. I think that when you're building a company, you're, uh, you're moving from selling a dream and an idea to selling reality and selling financials. And as you look at each subsequent funding round, it becomes more and more a function of the PNL and the characteristics of that PNL growth rates, gross margins, stuff like that. And, you know, it's more fun to sell a dream <laughs> on some level, but then it's also really nice to just, things become very simple. At some point it becomes very capitalistic and you're just like selling the reality of the health of a particular business. So I think in the A and even B rounds, you're doing a bit of both at that point. So you are basically providing as much validation as you can in terms of unit economics and what kind of resources you need to pour into a company in order to get out revenue effectively and what the characteristics of that revenue are. But you're also still selling a long-term strategy and you're still probably selling more cohesive thoughts around what the actual TAM is across the market that you're tackling. So look, I think if you want to make your life really easy, knock it out of the park in terms of performance, right? If you are looking to raise a B and you had a fast ramp up to 10 million plus in ARR and everything looks super rosy and you already have positive unit economics and low churn. I mean, if everything's rosy, then that is just the thing that VCs are trained to understand quickly and it's going to eliminate friction. Now, obviously in real life with most companies, that's not exactly the case. And things are still being ironed out and not optimized. And there's all types of other considerations taken into account. And I always look for VCs that could really align with the long-term vision and the story. And they're not hyper financial per performance focused on the earlier side of the investment. Later on, I think that's what it becomes on the growth equity side. But their return profiles and their expectations are also very different at that point. So you really want to try to construct a board of directors and a team where there's a philosophical alignment that could withstand, you know, peaks and valleys and ups and downs, because building these things is always a roller coaster. And we have our perfect set of expectations around how things are going to play out and projections that are always up and to the right. But, you know, it's like when you get punched in the nose repeatedly and then have to react to reality of that is, is really what separates a successful company versus a failed one in many cases. So making sure that the person and the individuals that end up sitting on your board are folks that you actually like and want to work with long-term, I think are very important. It really helps if they believe in the vision and are in it for the long haul with you. And that's honestly why, in, in many cases, why this isn't always the case at all, but like premium investors from premium firms often tend to have that perspective and that's probably why they're premium. Yep, indeed. Great. Thank you for that perspective. And I wanted to dive a little bit into your fundraising journey. So it's great that we can cover that together. But let's shift back to Pearl. And so at Amazon, we're customer obsessed. 
So we talked a little bit about what your product does. I shared a little bit about second opinion. We'll go into more detail on the technical aspect later. But for now, can you bring the solution to life for me through the eyes of one of your customers? So is there a case study or somebody we could talk about that will help the audience really appreciate the impact that your solution has for them? Yeah, for sure. I could speak to a couple maybe that are just really illuminating. The nice thing about what we do and what makes it really fun day to day, and this is partially what I like about computer vision, outside of just like the fun technical nature of it all, it's very visual. So you're able to just show things in a visual manner. I think we're a very visual species and there's really nice attributes to being able to just pull up. In our case, as a great example, second opinion, you pull it up, there's an x-ray. That x-ray has AI detections turned on. We're identifying an array of disease with colors and with measurements and you can roll over them and interact with them and you could see for example, how much decay is encroaching into various elements of the tooth. You could see a measurement of bone levels, which is color-coded. You could see things like margin discrepancies. You know, I won't get into all the dental speak, but pretty much all the common pathology that you're interested in. And immediately there's an aha moment. One of the reasons is because you get to see that when you turn off the detections for a moment with the naked eye, it's really hard to see some of these things. That's just the reality of the situation. It's just they're very faint, they're very small, but they're important. And this is why they're missed all the time. It's very intuitive. And the other thing is if you put yourself in the position of a patient, you could say, oh, I suddenly could understand what is happening here. So not only do we identify pathology, we also do something called anatomical tooth segmentation. And what that means is we color code all the oral anatomy. So we will differentiate the cementum from the pulp and the dentin and the different elements of the tooth. So when you're talking about, okay, this area of decay is so encroached into the enamel that if it goes another millimeter, it's going to touch the nerve. And if it touches the nerve, you're going to need a root canal. Suddenly when you can see that all visually, there's an elevated level of understanding and elevated level of trust. And that's why we're such believers that this is going to become a standard of care very rapidly because this is just so useful. From a case study perspective, one study we ran was asking 136 practitioners to diagnose and treatment plan a single patient FMX set. And what we found there when you dig into the study, and this is available on our website, so anybody can go download it. But we found that concurrence never surpassed 50%. If you looked at certain teeth in particular, like I remember tooth number three in the study, 51% identified cavities and 49% did not on that tooth. 60% identified recurrent decay and 40% did not. So it's almost a coin flip for some of these detections, and it speaks to just how subjective a lot of this stuff is and the need for more rigorous clinical help. And we were able to prove via our clinical trials with the FDA that we're able to perform at very high levels of accuracy when compared to humans and even higher level of accuracy when working in conjunction and partnership with human practitioners. The value of that is just so deeply obvious. Another quick anecdote is there was in 1997, there was a, a Reader's Digest journalist who went across to 50 states to try to get 50 diagnoses from 50 dentists. And in our study, the treatment costs came in between $300 and $36,000 from these practitioners for the same patient. And very similarly, I think that one was like between $0 and $30,000 for him. This speaks to the fact that there is also a lack of trust on some level in dentistry. You don't, these are for-profit entities, right? 
And there are sometimes perverse incentives there. So this helps keep everyone honest. Now, the reality of dentistry today is that there's an epidemic of underdiagnosis and undertreatment. Because so much pathology is being missed, it is much more difficult to engage in proactive preventative care. And we enable that significantly. So we'll include a link to that study in the show notes for anybody who wants to check it out. You know, one of my favorite parts about going to the dentist is when I get imaged and they show me the imagery, right? To your point about how important visual storytelling is because, you know, I can, it can feel paternalistic, you know, like, of course I haven't been flossing as much as I should. Of course my brushing technique has not successfully gotten around my rear molars. Right. But when you see the photos from the last visit and it really brings it to life, but this you know, this augmentation that you're providing, you know, it doesn't just benefit the dentist. It also benefits the patient, right? Who's more empowered and you know, they can more meaningfully understand what's going on within their mouth and do something to adjust it, which is great. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about your regulatory strategy from company founding up until today? So it sounds like you're regulated as a medical device by the FDA. So how did you approach that? Did you bring on consultants or key members of the team, that this is something that's really challenging for early stage companies in the space. So it'd be great to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah. I mean, the strategies suffer a lot, spend a lot of money and hopefully get it done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good strategy. Yeah. It's, it's basically what we and everyone else does. So yeah. So we have over a hundred regulatory clearances now globally. So we could have a whole conversation about MDR clearance in the EU, which is a dramatically different effort than what we do here in the United States with the FDA. And then there's the PMDA in Japan, which is more similar, but we'll just focus on FDA for the moment. And yeah, it's a very involved effort. One of our first hires was the chief compliance officer who has done this kind of work before and brought on multiple firms and entities to help consult on the approach with the FDA and then that entirety of that process. Now, what we did was extremely bold and extremely unique in that we went for many clearances, like 10 clearances at one time with a single FDA submission. That's almost never done in this category, almost always one at a time. So we did make our lives difficult with that. In that what was the reason for that decision? Why did you choose to do that? Well, we've had the capabilities built and we wanted to provide the real promise of AI to the industry, which is real-time patient-facing pathology detection for all radiographic modalities, for all age groups, and not provide a tenth or a fifth of that value prop. Yeah, you need it for the solution cell, right? You need it to be able to show the whole promise of the solution instead of just having features piecemeal. Well, that's what you ideally do. Now, there's not a ton of competition, but there's some competition and they've had to go the one by one approach and it's always extremely limited because you're not able to provide the full value of what's possible. So uh, relative to the product that we wanted to put in market, we needed that clearance for all those things. And it definitely was an interesting process because we couldn't adhere to any of the statistical approaches that all the other FDA clearances went through for radiographic AI. We actually brought in the Dean of the School of Statistics from Harvard and Stanford to help advise on the statistical approach and convince the FDA that statistical approach was statistically valid um, when looking at so many detections at one time. We had spoke from the FDA tell us you could have probably gotten this a year ago, but we were like confused. So like it delayed us by as much as a year. But we did get it done. We were successful in that and we got everything cleared in one submission. 
And that's been great for the company. But it was a very involved process and a very expensive process and a very stressful one because the reality is if you do what we do and many other companies increasingly do this kind of work and other forms of medicine, like it's all or nothing. Like you cannot commercialize this product. You cannot market this product in the United States without regulatory clearance. Now we're a caddy device too. So, you know, there's requirements associated with that. We have to show you're either at or above human level performance. Now you compound that with the fact that the FDA is not extremely buttoned up as it relates to how they think about or review AI. They don't actually have formal guidance. They have like guidance around creating guidance, you know? So a lot of it is collaborative, but it's also an agency that is very strict on following very particular protocols. And AI presents very unique challenges to a regulatory agency that are just not present in other forms of medicine or any other types of clearances because it's constantly evolving and it's just, it's learning and it's a different kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it's definitely an area where it had to be successful in our case and we had to invest heavily in that effort. Yeah. Some good nuggets there, some trade-offs to balance between speed to market and completeness of the solution. I mean, you're really trying to sell the art of the possible, right? So it makes sense why you decided on the trade-off as you did, and it's obviously worked out. Uh, let's talk a little bit about deployment. So how do you integrate into the practice and how do you ensure that the solution fits well within the dentist's workflows? Yeah. So we have a few different solutions. One of those solutions is called Prax Intelligence, and that's where we actually look at the practice management system or the EHR and we correlate all that data with the diagnostic data and the x-rays. And it's really interesting, powerful stuff there that has RCM applications and applications around servicing every major stakeholder in the dental environment. But that aside for the moment, just because it's simpler to talk about second opinion, is we really have two modes by which you can access these capabilities. One is you could sign up for our standalone tool, which is a software medical device that is providing you with uh, diagnostic AI. And the other way that's increasingly, this is finding its way into market, is by virtue of partners that already have very popular imaging systems in market, integrating our capabilities natively into their existing interfaces and workflows. Hmm. Did you do any user testing when you deployed early on? How did you get customer feedback to make sure that the the actual way that people interpret the scans fits well with how they would typically do their their interactions with patients. Was there were there any ways that you captured early customer feedback to make sure that you had the right yeah, approach? A lot. So we have clinical advisory board, we have clinicians on staff, we have former hygienists on staff and dental professionals and have been and continue to be very active with trying to gather market feedback and make sure that we're adding true fundamental value and presenting that value in a manner that will integrate nicely into the existing office workflow, which is just a very significant consideration if you want this stuff to be used, because you're not really dealing with like, in many cases, very tech savvy individuals, right? You have someone who's been working the front desk for the past 30 years or a dentist who's 66 years old, and they're used to doing things in a particular way and they use technology for sure, but they've not used this technology in their workflows. And we need to be really thoughtful around making this very accessible. Let's talk about the underlying technology a little bit. Can you tell me about the training data that you used for the core AI, any machine learning techniques you use? 
how cloud is important and how you deploy your solution. It'd be great to hear a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, I've been a, uh, a heavy user and spender on AWS pretty much forever since you got launched. So my previous company was built on AWS. The current company is built on AWS. Our CTO at Pearl was our head of AI over at GumGum and we're heavy AWS users, happily so. I think AWS has been great and really started this whole cloud infrastructure game in the way that we know it today. So this is not an ad. I'm not getting paid. I'm just saying I am happy with AWS. We've had a longstanding, healthy relationship. And all of our core infrastructure has been built on AWS and all of our replicated infrastructure has been replicated around the world at both companies on AWS. So with the training data, it's just important that we get a lot of data that is representative of the market. So in this case, you want demographic considerations. So you want different age groups and nationalities, genders, stuff like that from around the world, but also sensor types. So different sensors put out different quality and resolution radiography. We're built to be device agnostic. And this is something the FDA looked heavily into is demographic representation, but also representation for a myriad of sensor types. Um, so that they could validate that we were actually performant across whatever you might see in market in the wild. That includes digital as well as things called phosphor plates. Um, so yeah, gathering data honestly was not hugely challenging for us. We would ask different companies and entities, universities, and as long as we sort of adhered to these security protocols and they were generally pretty happy to participate. But we had to be very cognizant of making sure that data was highly representative of the market. Yep. And where did you source it? So were you sourcing it from collaborations with researchers? Uh, did you use any synthetic data for your training? No. So the FDA would definitely not we be We should come okay back to that, that and generative AI like applications. But we'll put a pin in that and come back. It's very interesting. And I think there's real opportunity there, but we just don't go there. Um, yeah, they're not, they're we not can, predicates. And we know yeah, how there's to. not predicates. Not yet. There's no predicates. Well, initially, we just went to individual dental practices and said, hey, can we access some of your imagery? We want to do some testing. And then we had some large industry partners and university partners that we talked to about this. And everyone was pretty compelled by it and wanted to form the relationship with the company in the case it was successful. Um, and we're able to acquire lots of data. And now we have way like approaching probably a billion radiographs. Like we're never going to be able to touch the vast majority of the data that we have access to at this point, nor do we have to because it's not feasible to do so with the supervised training approach that we leverage to solve these problems. How do you label your data for your supervised learning? Do you have an in-house team that's reviewing? Do you take feedback from clinics that have deployed Pearl? How does that work? We work with hundreds of clinicians globally, so you really need to be very careful around being reliant on any individual or subset of practitioners because there's always bias. Um, so we have entire protocols and methodologies for capturing data and then sanitizing that data and making sure that it's gone through the process such that it can be inserted into the training set or the gold set that we use to validate results to brand truth set, whatever you want to call it. And we built a huge infrastructure for annotation, annotator management, validation, all of that stuff. That's like kind of the stuff that happens behind the scenes that people don't really think about, but is very critical for this to work. And increasingly, I should say, we're also able to be somewhat more reliant on open source annotation capabilities that have gotten significantly better. So they didn't really exist when we were operating earlier on, but they've gotten more advanced. So there's benefits there. 
Let's talk a little bit about generative AI or other emerging trends you see in AI. I mean, even though natural language processing and these techniques have been around for a while, now that the consumer-facing application, i.e. the chatbot, is out, no one can shut up about it. But it's still cool, and it feels like we're at the beginning of I mean, something quite cool. big. Yeah. So we touched on synthetic data a bit earlier. Do you think there's opportunities for creating synthetic data for training, perhaps in underrepresented demographics or training slices that you have? You mentioned the EHR integrations, multimodal data, patient comms, and you know, like maybe just riff on it a bit. Do you plan on deploying generative AI into Perl solutions? And what's your ambition? I mean, so we have been using generative AI for some time in terms of upsampling resolutions and imagery, and that is generative in nature. We have not gone heavy into the synthetic data side of things because anything we do there is arguably throwaway. You have to go back through regulatory. Go back to regulatory. And then we know they're not going to accept it. <laughs> like I could say that with that degree of certainty. So it would just be throwaway work. So we're very curious about that. But we need the FDA to catch up and form an opinion about it before we really get into it. In terms of the language models, we have been exploring with reading patient data out of the EHR that is often freeform and seeing if we can combine that with some of our other tool sets to just provide value. And there is an opportunity there to do some interesting stuff, for sure. I think there'll be some successful development around that from us and others. So, I mean, those are the data sets you have. If you're a company like ours, you have the HR, you have practitioner notes and other diagnostic notes and patient history and treatment activities and scheduling activities, stuff like that. And then you have the diagnostic data from the x-rays. And there is the opportunity to bring lots of these capabilities to bear. We just try to be very intentional about how we approach that. Ophir, when we wrap our conversation and you go out into the sun, I can see it behind you for the audience. There's a beautiful patio behind him and the sun streaming in. And you think back on this conversation, what question will you wish that I asked you? I think you've done a pretty good job. Maybe one area of interest is just how folks should be thinking about AI in general, maybe in the field of medicine, but also elsewhere. Is it a danger or is it going to take over? <laughs> you know, like the, like, I think the general population doesn't know quite what to make of this and I don't blame them. I don't know what to make of it half the time. I do with regards to what we do. I think it's very controlled and I don't think it represents any Terminator style risk, but there's, there's a broad conversation. I could say with certainty though, just to focus on what I know, especially well is that we are really a second set of eyes and working very much in conjunction with human practitioners to help elevate the standard of care in dentistry. The machine is providing or highlighting areas of interest for the practitioner so that they can make the, the final diagnostic decision, communicate that to uh, the patient, come up with a treatment plan, and actually execute the treatment plan. So I think this is a good example of where AI is incredibly additive and incredibly helpful, and it's difficult to see where the downside of it is. Not to say that there isn't one potentially, but I don't think there's one here. Even in the way that in other forms of radiology, folks are concerned that their jobs are going to be taken away. And I think there's a really interesting conversation to have around that. Even though I don't think that's quite how it's going to play out, at least for a long time. Like I think in dentistry, again, this is not core to what these individuals pride themselves on. They're there to take care of patients and ensure high quality of oral health. And this just helps them do that fundamentally. Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately you've chosen an area very deliberately and very cleverly where the downside risks are well managed. The pathology is not such that 
these are life and death decisions. And the other attribute that's really important is just the alternatives, right? The alternative for a very busy dentist to be able to interpret the scans and be able to make a care decision really rapidly. Um, based on your journey with Pearl, and you've given a lot of good advice today beyond fundraising and how to think about regulatory, some of the trade-offs, how to think about the product development and apply expertise from founding multiple companies. But there's a lot of founders who want to apply AI to innovate in healthcare. And what general advice would you have for an early stage founder? So earlier we were talking about somebody who is going to raise their B, think pre-seed or seed now. You know, what advice yeah. do you have for them? I mean, I think I have two good answers here. So one would be great AI is not enough. You need a functional product that is adding fundamental value. But that sort of coincides with my second point, which is in healthcare in particular, workflow is everything. You could provide the industry with phenomenal capabilities, but if it's hard to find or hard to use or hard to understand or hard to pull up, and it's just too far out of keeping with the existing workflows that folks are comfortable with, they're probably not going to use it. And that might seem crazy to you as a person who knows the value of the technology that you've built and knows just how impactful it is. But my own experience and in interfacing with lots of other folks who, who do this kind of work, it really does come down to workflows and making it really seamless. If you're able to do that, you'll find a lot more success. I would focus on workflow from day one and make sure that it's really easy to interface with and access whatever services you're providing. There we go. Nail the workflow from Ophir Tan, CEO and founder of Pearl. Man, it's been a blast having you on the show today. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you. It's been great to be here. Thanks for joining us today for the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. If you want to get in touch with AWS, please check out our show notes where you can find a link. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is to share it with your colleagues and friends. We also really appreciate your reviews and ratings wherever you listen to podcasts. We love hearing feedback from our listeners, so please don't hesitate to get in touch. Again, you'll find all the details in our show notes. See you next week.